Well, some of you probably know this. I may have mentioned it before, but I have a twin brother. And my twin brother's name is Evan. And one day when we were in high school, we were on the same tennis team. And we happened to be captains of this tennis team together our senior year. And apparently the local paper thought that was an interesting deal. So they sent a reporter out unannounced, and she shows up at our practice one day. And she wanted to interview Evan and I and and write up a story for the paper. So she did, and and here was the result. She wrote an article called, One's Competitive, the Other a Clown, but Both Find Success. Uh, I think I got the short end of the stick on the title. But it was a good title because my brother is incredibly competitive. And I am not. He went on to become a USPTA elite professional, and now he is the director of tennis for Lifetime Fitness in Michigan. So he did something with it, and you don't get that good without a whole lot of research and a whole lot of practice. And I remember when we were growing up, my brother was constantly reading articles about tennis. I mean, you're probably thinking, how boring is that? Uh, But my brother, he would read articles. How do you hit a flat serve? How do you hit a slice serve? How do you hit a western backhand? How do you hit a one-handed backhand? How do you move? What do the different stroke patterns look like? How do you put spin on the ball? All these different things. And I know that because he lectured me, but he he would read these articles, figure out how to do it, and then he would go home and he would practice. My dad had built him a backboard at our house, and he would stand there for hours and just pummel the tennis ball against our house. And, And I remember one day we had a match, and my brother was playing a guy who was nowhere near as good as he was. I mean, this guy's technical form was absolutely horrible, and he's beating my brother, and my brother's kind of got a bit of a temper, and you could just see him getting more and more frustrated with this. And so finally, they have a break, and the coach comes over to the fence. He says, Evan, man, you just got to calm down. Quit thinking about how you're going to swing. Quit thinking about your racket speed. Quit thinking about your stroke pattern. Just remember the main thing. You've got to keep your eye on the ball and then move to it and hit the dumb thing, right? So, So Evan does. He goes out there. He remembers to keep the main thing, the main thing, and he won. And I I think that sometimes a lot of us uh, in our spiritual lives, we get like that, right? We find ourselves in the same boat where we lose sight of the main thing. We get so caught up in in details and minutia that we aren't sure what God really wants us to do. You know, maybe you're a new Christian, and and you're picking up the Bible and going, okay, this thing's how many thousands of pages, and there's 66 books in it, and I don't even know where to start. You know, you maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time, and uh, you you are good at studying the Bible. You know what it says. Maybe you're even a bit of an amateur theologian, and if that's the case, sometimes those types of people lose sight of the forest for all the trees. And so what we've got to learn how to do is to be people who are are centered on Christ. And this morning, we're going to turn again to the book of Colossians. And we're going to get what I call the 30,000-foot view of Christ-centered living. And we're going to see in a broad sense that Christ-centered Christians are those people that seek to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And Paul's going to demonstrate to us what that looks like with three different characteristics of a Christ-centered Christian who's living a life that pleases the Lord. So if you have a Bible, open it up and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to primarily look at a prayer 
that happens in verses 9 to 14 this morning. But I want to read uh, beginning in verse 1 so that you can get a flavor of the context. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now the section we're going to focus on today. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And there's a, there's a lot there. But, but Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae, and he describes this audience using the word faithful in one of those opening verses. And it's interesting because this is the only time in the New Testament in any of Paul's epistles where he describes his audience as faithful. They're often described as holy, but here he calls them faithful. And then he goes on and he says that he thanks God when he prays for them because the gospel has come to them. And I think here's a glimpse at the faithfulness. It is bearing fruit in their lives and they're loving one another and they are increasing in their knowledge of God. And so there's this sense in which this body of believers has already been pursuing Christ-likeness. They are attempting to live out the truths of the gospel in everyday life. And this prayer that we're going to look at in verses 9 to 14 is, is really a continuation of that idea. Paul is praying and asking God that they may continue on the course that they have begun, that they may pursue Christ even in the midst of that false teaching that we talked about last week. And this prayer, it's really, I mean, it's five verses, but there's really just one simple request here. And it's that Paul wants them to come to a knowledge of God's will. And he wants that knowledge to manifest itself in a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. See, that's really what Christ-centered living is all about. It's knowing what God wants you to do and then actually doing it. Taking what you know about God and his character and his desires and his heart and his, his commands for you and then putting them into practice as his image bearer in this fallen world. That is Christ-centered living. And that is what Paul is asking God to do in the lives of the Colossians. Look with me a little bit closer here at verse 9, and we're going to unpack that idea. You'll see that Paul prays that they be, will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And this word filled here is really a neat word. It is what theologians call a divine passive verb. So in a passive verb, it is God here who is doing the action. 
So in this case, God is doing the filling. You do not fill yourself with the knowledge of God's will. God fills you with the knowledge of his will. And the word knowledge here in the New Testament is used to describe a personal knowledge, kind of an experiential knowledge. It is more than just head information. It's more than just intellectual. It's not knowing about, it is knowing. You see, if I were to tell you that I know Greek, for example, what would that mean? That means I know all the letters, I know the parts of speech, I know the, the different words, I know the grammar, I know the syntax, I know what typical sentence construction looks like, I can read it, I can make sense of it, right? But where is that? That's all just, that's all just up here. That's all just head information. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is actually knowing someone. Something where there is some emotional element involved. You know, if I tell you that I know my wife, what I'm saying is that I, I know what makes her tick, right? I know what she cares about. I know what she loves. I understand the way she thinks and how she responds to certain situations. Maybe even I can anticipate how she might respond to certain things. That's the idea that Paul has here. It, it is a personal knowing. And in the same way, Paul is praying that God will fill the Colossians with this personal knowledge of himself and of his desires. He wants the Colossians to know who Christ is and all that he means, not just for their own lives, but for the universe. And you can see this implication. If you look back at the text here, he, he qualifies knowledge, and he adds two qualities to it. He says that the knowledge may be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, this, this really is a singular idea. He's not praying that they might be filled with wisdom separate from understanding. You might think of it as, as practical wisdom given by the Spirit of God. And so when you put all those pieces together, his prayer is really that the Colossians will be filled with this understanding of who God is, of what he desires, and then how it applies to their life. And he prays for them that God will fill them with this knowledge for a particular reason. It's not just so that they can have this knowledge and keep it to themselves. No, for what purpose does he do that? He prays, look at verse 10, so that they might walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And this idea of walk in Scripture really kind of represents your life. It's the idea of living. So, so the idea here is he wants them to live worthy of the Lord. That's the idea. Where, where does this Christ-centered living idea come from? It comes from right here. We are to live in a way that makes much of Christ and in a manner worthy of him. And that's a lifestyle that reflects God in every way. It asks in every decision, what would God have me to do right now in this moment? And, and notice here, it's described as fully pleasing to him. That, that means that it is all-encompassing, that it demands obedience of you in each and every corner of your life, right? The goal of Christ-centered living isn't to have Christ in some Christian box. It's for Christ to be involved in each and everything that you do and in every corner of your life. You know, and we, we could talk a, a lot about, how, well, what does that look like? You know, what does Christ-centeredness look like at my house? What's it look like in my job? 
How does it affect how I should handle my money? You know, how does it affect how I should serve in the church and do ministry? But we're going to set a lot of those questions off to the side today because they're answered later in the book of Colossians, specifically in chapter 3. And what I want today to do is to stay with this text, and, and we're going to see some features that characterize the life of a believer who is seeking to know and apply the will of God in their life. You know, a lot of things change from situation to situation, but there are some elements of the Christ-centered life that are consistent. What we're going to see from Paul here this morning is three characteristics that affect every area of your life and do not change regardless of the situation. The first characteristic that I want you to see here that describes a Christ-centered Christian, someone who is living in a manner worthy of the Lord, is that a Christ-centered Christian has continuing spiritual growth. And this idea comes from two complementary phrases here that Paul joins together with the word and. He says that someone who is living in a manner worthy of the Lord is someone who's bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in their knowledge of God. If we take the first one of those phrases and think about bearing fruit, the idea of fruitfulness in the New Testament is the idea of productiveness. Productiveness. It, it may be people coming to Christ in evangelistic type efforts, but it also fleshes itself out in, in uh, how we live. Think like the fruit of the Spirit. You know, when we, when we read the Word, the Word produces in us Christ-likeness and Christ-like characteristics, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all things that, that are fruits that are manifested in the Christian life through the Spirit. But the idea here is even broader than that. And it probably includes any successes in Christian living. To help you understand this a little bit, I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, where he talks about our salvation. He says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourself, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You see, God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for good works. He has always intended from the very time that he chose you for you to live out the Christian life, to manifest Christ in everything and every situation that you are a part of. And so it's no surprise here when Paul says that the Christ-centered Christian is someone who bears fruit for the kingdom as they do those works that he has prepared for them to walk in. Now, there's a second part of this equation. Remember I mentioned that these two phrases work together. They're different sides of the same coin. The other phrase here is increasing in the knowledge of God. Now once again, this is not referring to some just intellectual knowledge of God, but rather it is getting to know Him in a deeper and a more experiential way. You see, that there's a really close connection between serving God and knowing God. Serving God and knowing God. They go hand in hand. The book of 1 John speaks to this issue. In the opening part of 1 John, he, he writes as to why he wrote the epistle. And this is what he says. He wrote, so that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, Paul, or, so John writes this epistle to so that they might have fellowship with Jesus. 
And then this idea of fellowship fleshes itself out in the epistle. And he uses a lot of different words to describe this experiential fellowship. One of the words that he uses is abide, is abiding. I want you to notice here in chapter 3 of 1 John, he brings together these ideas of serving and abiding. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. You see that? If you keep the commands of God, God abides in you. That's the idea that when you do what he wants you to do, when you walk in his will, he has fellowship with you. Now, in other words, when you serve God, when you seek to live out his will, your knowledge of him increases. Your obedience to the work of God brings further knowledge of God himself. I mean, it's such a neat thing. You know, and let me show this to you a little bit. How many of you have ever been on a missions trip? Brian's known for missions trips. Raise your hand in the air if you have been on a missions trip, all right? A whole bunch of you have been on missions trips. But one of the things you'll hear most often from people after they get back from a missions trip is how much God moved in their life, right? Or how close they felt to God on that missions trip. But you'll also see another trend. And that trend is this. In a few weeks, after they get back and life gets back to normal and the busyness and the routine of life begins to tug at them, it doesn't seem like God is moving in their lives anymore. Right? You guys are familiar with this phenomenon? A lot of people will refer to it as the mission trip mountain. You know, God takes you high and you experience him in ways that you never have before, but then it seems to just fall off and disappear as soon as it came. Well, why? Why? Because as you were serving God and you were, you were bearing fruit, you were demonstrating obedience to his commands, you were also increasing in the knowledge of him. But then when you got back to your everyday life and, and your comfortable American Christianity began to tug on you, you put God on the back burner and you didn't seek to daily walk in his will. And when we're not daily walking in his will, we are missing out on this increased knowledge of God. And I'm here to suggest to you this morning that the mission trip mountain should be normative for the Christian life. If your life never feels like you are close to God, you are missing the boat. And it's probably because you are not walking in obedience daily to the will of God. So, what do you do about that? You look for opportunities to constantly be walking in God's will. To walk in those good works that he has put before you ahead of time. You serve and you show God's character to other people through your actions, right? You know, but a lot of us, we don't look for the opportunity to, to walk in the good works. We look for opportunities to increase our knowledge of God. We're addicted to Bible studies. And I'm not here to tell you Bible studies are bad. But here's what happens. If you're the kind of person that does tons and tons of Bible studies and then never does anything with it, you are what a friend of mine calls a T-Rex Christian. A T-Rex Christian. You have a big head and little hands, right? You know all kinds of stuff about God. You know who God is, right? But the feet don't move and the hands don't do anything, right? They're just worthless appendages. And that is not what God has called you to do. One of the reasons that, that Paul writes this epistle is so that people will avoid that. 
so that they will live out the Christian life, so that they will have a life that reflects Christ to the world and makes much of him as they go forth. Because God's purpose in this world is not about you, right? It's about him. And you exist to make much of Jesus. And so that involves not just knowing about God, but knowing him and then doing something with it. You know, and, and, and often we think about that and we go, well, okay, where do I even start? When, when all the mission trips just left. I'm missing out on those. So, so what do I do to bear fruit? What are the good works that I can walk in? Well, here's where I would suggest to you to start. Pick up a Bible and read it, right? Because in the Bible, God reveals to us his will of desire, right? It's not some hidden secret, right? God reveals in the Bible what he wants you to do and how he wants you to live. So you open that Bible, and you read it, and, and I'd suggest to you, start with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Just go straight to the fruit of the Spirit, memorize those texts, right? And then ask God, go to Him in prayer, and ask Him to help you apply those Christ-like characteristics to your daily situation. So, for example, if, if you find yourself tempted, and you need to, maybe you need to exercise some self-control, you know, maybe you find yourself frustrated with a particular situation and you're dwelling on the negativity and you need to demonstrate the joy of a Christian to other people. You know, maybe you're fighting with your spouse and you need to exercise some kindness and some gentleness. You know, maybe you're discouraged by the circumstances in your life. That may be many of you and what our church is going through right now. Maybe you need to demonstrate some faithfulness. You know, it's easy to start. Just pick a characteristic, and if one of those doesn't, you don't think one of those applies to your wife or to your life, ask your wife. She'll tell you which one works, right? Ask your friends, because we can all become more Christ-like, and, and this is a beautiful cycle. You see what happens here? The more you do that, the more fruit you're going to see, and the more you're going to increase in the knowledge of God, and when you increase in your knowledge of God, the more likely you are to be obedient to his will. It's just a beautiful cycle of, of spiritual growth that characterizes someone who is living the Christ-centered life. And so the first step in your Christ-centered life in the worthy walk is continual spiritual growth. And I know that's not always easy. It is hard sometimes to apply God's will to your daily situations. It's a big task. And if you were to try to tackle that by yourself, you'd probably burn out really quick. But I want you to see that God doesn't just leave us with this burden of continuing spiritual growth. Look here with me at the text. We're going to see the second characteristic of the Christ-centered life. And this is something that sets believers apart from the rest of the world. You see, a Christ-centered Christian is strengthened by God's power. God's power strengthens you. And I want you to notice three things here about this strengthening. First, the extent of the strengthening. You are strengthened with all power. That means complete power, unlimited power, inexhaustible power, the greatest strength imaginable you can be strengthened with. Second, notice the source of the power. You are strengthened by God's might. You see, the power comes from God himself as an expression of his glory in this world. Third, I want you to notice the purpose of God in strengthening. You are strengthened so that you may have endurance and patience. Endurance and patience. God empowers you with this incredible ability to persevere through all the difficulties of life. 
Because of Christ, you can face anything that this world brings your way. And the world typically brings those difficulties to you in one of two ways. They're usually either circumstantial difficulties or they're people difficulties, right? If we take that first one and think about difficult circumstances, we're thinking about things that we typically have to suffer through. The text says they have to be endured. You know, we're facing that right now as a church body. We are facing a trying, difficult situation. But, but you're going to face difficult situations when, when you lose loved ones. Maybe you get ill. Maybe your investments all tank and go south. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe your kids are frustrating and have you at your wit's end. You know, maybe you're struggling with sin. All those types of situations are going to force you to rely on some source of strength. And that strength is either going to come from you or it's going to come from Christ. And one of the two ways works out a whole lot better, all right? When we don't, we don't, we have to realize that we don't have to suck it up. We don't have to rely on our own strength. When we're ready to collapse in our own weakness and in our own despair, we can turn to the Lord and receive not a renewal of our own strength, but an influx of His complete power, I mean, this is, this, is a, this is just a neat picture. Look with me. This is the same idea as in uh, Isaiah, chapter 40. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The picture here is that there is no one, no one in the whole world who can rely on their own strength forever. No matter who you are, no matter how well prepared you think you are, there are situations that will bring you to your knees. And it gets that idea across by saying that even the youth will grow weary. Now, you know, you think about that and you go, well, youth don't get tired. Look, think with me, if you're a golf fan, you probably remember the 2016 Masters, right? 2016 Masters. A young 22-year-old guy is the defending champion. His name's Jordan Spieth. I bet most of you are familiar with him. In this Masters tournament, it was Sunday, Sunday afternoon, going into the back nine. He just birdied four holes in a row. He's up by five strokes with the back nine to go. And by any stretch of the imagination, he had the thing in the bag, right? And he gets to hole number 10, and he bogeys the thing. And then he goes to hole 11, and he bogeys the thing. And then he gets the hole 12, and he stands on the tee box, and he hits the ball in the drink. So he takes a drop, he goes, goes to the drop zone, and he dunks it in the lake again. And then he takes another drop, and he hits it into the bunker. And he winds up getting a 7 on a 150-yard par 3. Golf commentators, he wound up going on to lose the tournament. Golf commentators have called it the greatest collapse in the history of the sport. And as you think about that, you think, what happened, right? What happened? 22-year-old kid. And nobody besides Spieth really knows what happened. Did he get tired physically? Did he get emotionally or mentally exhausted? But either way, it is, I think, the perfect picture of no matter how sharp you are, no matter how far you think your own effort can get you, no matter how much you've trained, no matter how much willpower you think you have, no matter how much strength you think you can muster up, there are going to be situations where your strength 
just won't cut it. And what do you do in those kind of situations? What do we do when we don't know where to turn? The only way to endure in those types of circumstances is to rely on the power of Jesus Christ. And if you turn to him in your weakness and in your struggle, it says he will renew your strength in such a way that you will soar on wings like eagles, right? But circumstances aren't the only things that get us down. Sometimes people get us down. And this text says that Christ-centered Christians will be strengthened for all patience as well. Now, patience is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaining or irritation. Without complaining or irritation. And these sorts of provocations usually come from people, right? You know, relationships are some of our greatest sources of blessings. But at the same time, people cause pain, right? People are sinners. And because they are sinners, they don't always do what God wants them to do. And they cause us pain and they cause us problem. And you're going to get hurt by people. So what do you do when somebody hurts you? Here's what you do. You can deal with that power because God himself is going to strengthen you and give you patience to deal with that person. You know, this, this text just blows my mind. It's, it's absolutely incredible what's going on here. God is saying that there is no circumstance and there is no person on this planet that can upset the Christ-centered Christian because you have the ability to draw strength from the Lord. I mean, what a, what a glorious truth, right? Your strength comes from the Lord so that you can face anything that comes your way. But, but how do you do that? How do you go about strengthening. How's the Lord do that? You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I came across an interesting article, and and I want to quote it for you because I, I think it speaks to this issue. The author said, the biblical pattern of God strengthening his saints is this. God chooses a sinful, weak person to be his redeemed saint. God further weakens this saint through circumstantial and or physical adversity. The saint is forced to trust God's promises. God proves himself faithful to those promises, and the saint's faith is strengthened and hope abounds because his or her faith doesn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You know, God's strengthening may not always be or come in a form that you expect. And as a matter of fact, sometimes it's going to be the exact opposite. He may not change your circumstances at all. He may not take you out of your circumstances. But he will change your understanding of those circumstances. And that's going to strengthen your faith, and that's going to give you hope. So today, if you're in a place where you feel beat down by your circumstances and by people, you can pray with confidence to God because he promises to strengthen your understanding, to strengthen your faith, and to strengthen your hope in him. And when he does that, you're going to be even more motivated for continual spiritual growth, and you're going to be more interested in looking for the works that God has set out for you to walk in. Now, when you do all of that, you know, if you're, if you're looking to continually grow spiritually, if you are in a tough place, though, and you're relying on the strength of God, if you're in a situation that's beating you up, what do you do in that? How do you respond to a situation that is difficult? The next characteristic of the Christ-centered Christian answers that question. 
And this is the final one. A Christ-centered Christian joyfully gives thanks to God. No matter what they're facing, someone who is centered on Christ gives thanks to God. And this phrase echoes, in my mind anyway, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, where we are commanded to give thanks in all circumstances. You see, the Christ-centered life is characterized by constant thanksgiving regardless of those horrible circumstances. But how, how do you and I do that? How are we thankful? How can we be thankful when we're dealing with pain, when we're dealing with disappointment, when we're dealing with sorrow? You know, how, how do we be thankful when we are having to draw on the strength of the Lord because our situation's that bad? What motivates thanksgiving in those moments? I want us to look to Jesus to answer that question. Look with me at Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, it says, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The word in that verse, forgive thanks, is the same word, forgive thanks, in our text this morning. It's a Greek word that you're probably familiar with. It's the word Eucharist. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get there. Eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. The word Eucharist comes from it. The core root of the word Eucharisteo is charis. And that's another word you're probably familiar with. It means grace. Grace. And if we think about that for a second, you know, I, I, I know that Jesus, when he took the bread, he was grateful for it because he was, it was a gift from God. But more so than that, he knew what the bread represented. He knew that the bread was a picture of God's grace that was about to be bestowed on all of mankind. He knew that his body was about to be broken and take on the wrath of God so that people might be reconciled back to the Father. It was going to be the ultimate display of grace. And so for that, he is thankful. And I think when you look at that at its most basic level, gratitude is a recognition of the grace of God. It is a response of the heart to God's grace. And in our text this morning, what we see, I think, are three results of Christ's body being broken. And these three results are evidences of God's grace in our lives for which we should be thankful. The first reason we should be thankful is because we will share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the idea that you and I were unfit to enter into the kingdom, and that God himself made it possible for you to share in the blessings that he has stored up for his people. The second reason we should be thankful is because he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and third, he has transferred us from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. And it is in Christ, he says, that we have redemption. Redemption is the idea that, that Christ has paid for our sins. He has secured our freedom. He was our emancipation from slavery. And the central feature of that redemption is that you and I have had our sins forgiven. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we can stand blameless before God and know that we will live forever because of what he has done for us. And for that, we should be thankful. If you don't constantly give thanks for that, I don't know what to tell you besides get saved. And, you know, it really, you think about this text, what Paul is doing is he's saying, you folks 
need to constantly and continually be thankful for the gospel because it is the root of the Christian life. You need to be thankful that Christ died on your behalf, that he paid the penalty for your sins, that he rose again, that he transferred you from the power and the domain of darkness to his kingdom where you receive the blessings of eternal life. That is grace. And and the Christian life should respond to that with thanksgiving. And if we want to be people who are centered on Christ, we need to be people who are constantly giving thanks to God for the gospel, for this redemption that he has accomplished, for the forgiveness of our sins. But our thanksgiving doesn't stop there. As a Christ-centered person, you should be looking for God's grace in your life on a daily basis. And when you see it, give thanks to him for it. You know, look for the blessings in your life because those are gifts from God. Look for his character displayed in you and in those around you. You know, notice instances where God is strengthening your faith. Thank him for your church family because it is through people that God does a lot of his work and where we see his grace manifest. You know, there is God's grace all over the place. If you just start looking for it, you won't be able to go an hour of your day without seeing the hand of God and His grace in your lives. And sometimes we just have to stop and slow down and look to see where God is working and acknowledge the grace that He is bestowing upon us. You know, I know this morning there are a lot of different people in this room from all walks. You know, maybe you are a brand new Christian. And this idea of of following Jesus just seems overwhelming. There's so much in here. Where where do I even start? Maybe you are like the Colossians. You're a faithful servant of Christ, and you've been doing that for many, many years. But no matter who you are or where you're at on your spiritual journey, this prayer of Paul's this morning should bring you back and be a reminder to you of at its core what the Christian life looks like. You need to ask yourselves, am I a Christ-centered Christian? Is every corner and every pocket of my life pleasing to him? Or am I just Christ-centered at church? And then when I leave here, I do what I want without regard for what God wants. See, the Christ-centered life is one that asks, what does Jesus want me to do right now? And it asks that question in each and every moment. It's a life that, put his, that puts his desires and his will above and before my own. It's a dying of myself and a following of Christ. And as our text reminds us this morning, a life that is pleasing to him is one that looks for opportunities to grow spiritually. It bears fruit. It increases in the knowledge of God. It's a life that is strengthened by God's power alone, and it is one that joyfully gives thanks for his grace in every corner and pocket of our lives. And so this morning, I just pray that that is the cry of not only my heart, but the cry of your heart as well, and the cry of this church, that we will be people who are willing to examine our lives and look for areas where we might not be doing what God wants us to do. And then I want you to look for opportunities to reach out and to make much of him to your family and to your friends and to your neighbors and to your community, and then around the world. And when it gets tough, when you are beat up because you are trying to serve God with everything that you've got and the world is pushing back, turn to him for strength and give thanks for the grace that he has bestowed you that enables you to keep going forward in a manner that makes much of him. Let's go to him in prayer.
because it is Jesus alone that fills us with the knowledge of his will so that we can live in a manner that makes much of him. Lord, we love you. And it is a hard thing to make you sometimes the center of our lives. We're not sure what to do. We keep pockets and areas away from you. But Lord, I just pray that you will fill each and every one of us with the knowledge of your will so that we can know how to manifest your glory to the world and make much of you. Lord, we pray that we might be people who walk in your good works and bear fruit and and increase in our knowledge of you. And Lord, we pray that when we come to our very wits end, we will turn to you for strength, that we will not rely on our own power or the power of others, but that we will rely on the power of Christ in us. And Lord, as we do that, help us to remain centered on you, acknowledging that your grace and your goodness are everywhere in our lives. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning. And Lord, may we be a light in this dark world as we seek to lift you up. We pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this morning, folks. I just pray that as a church, as we go through this tough time, we may be people who are constantly thinking about and looking for ways to make much of Jesus, because that is what Christ-centeredness looks like. When we draw our strength from him in the lowest of times, he will bless us with his grace. Amen. Have a good week.